Hello, hello, hello. Okay. All right, guys, here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 9. And so what we're going to be looking, I'll read the, as we always do, I'll read the full 62 verses of the chapter. Uh, but let me first state kind of the central theme that we're looking at from this chapter today. And it's trained by Jesus. Uh, the training of Jesus of his disciples you and I are being trained by Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he does. He trains. And um, two particular kind of overarching thoughts that fit under that in this chapter. The first is is this, that he sends us to do what we've seen him do. He sends us to do what we've seen him do. Now, you understand that I'm not speaking of literal seeing with your physical eyes, correct? How many of you physically seen Jesus do something? By body, thank you, okay. I mean, I know if he, like, you know, heals you, it's Jesus physically, you know, but you've never seen him physically in bodily form doing something. So we're talking about the eyes of your heart. He sends us to do what we see him do. And then secondly, I hope you can follow this, he reveals his glory to us and then leads us to lowliness so that we can manifest his glory. He gives us a picture of his glory followed by us being led through a place of lowliness in in route to the manifestation of the glory that we've seen. Gotcha? So Luke chapter 9, verse 1, let's read it. Then he called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two, two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. By the way, I'm reading from the New King James. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him and was perplexed because it was said by some that John, being John the Baptist, had risen from the dead and that some excuse me, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitude knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who were in need of healing. And when the day began to, uh, began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five fish and excuse me, five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples and set before the multitude. So they they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say uh, that one of the old prophets has risen again. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. 
saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and, and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, James, and and oh, Peter, John, and James, and he went up onto the mountain to pray. And he prayed, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy asleep, and when they were when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet, and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down the mountain, that a great multitude met him, and suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly cries out, it convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed by the, into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And then a dispute arose among them as to which would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great." Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that, the ste that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered into a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's, but, uh, men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. 
And now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so again, key theme that we're looking at through this chapter that we just read is being trained by Jesus because there's a big shift that's beginning to happen starting in this chapter in essence where Jesus is, is training, is, is upping, upping the, upping the, uh, Upping the, he's pushing down on the throttle a bit with this, with this training, and there's a shift. And the shift is this, that instead of just watching Jesus, and Jesus doing all of the work, and Jesus being the one doing everything, there's the beginnings of the indication that I'm going to hand this baton over to you, and you're the ones who are going to have to stand in my stead, and you're the ones who are going to stand in my name and do my work when this is over. And so can I say by implication and all of that, the same Jesus, who is the same today, yesterday, and yesterday, today, and forever, is still training his disciples in the exact same way. You and I ultimately are called to do the ministry of Jesus. And so, firstly, how does Jesus do this? He sends us to do what we've seen him do. If you'll look with me back at, at the first verse, Luke 9, 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Well, what have they been watching Jesus do this whole time? Preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. He, they've been watching. They've been seeing Jesus manifest. They've been beholding with him. They've been fellowshipping with him. They've been tracking him and following him. This is what he had seen them to do. And now he's saying, you go do exactly what you've seen. The idea is this, when you re, what you receive from Jesus will become what you're called to give away. And again, when I'm saying this, I'm not saying this in a sense of, obviously, we, we don't physically see Jesus. The, the shift has been made since Jesus ascended into heaven that the church follow him by having his spirit dwell inside of him and we have fellowship with, with him and we, we see him in that kind of way. He lives inside of us, yes. The, the spirit is inside of us. Did I say inside of him? Yeah, well, it is with him, and, and, and he's in us, and, and the Spirit's in us, and we're in him, and he's in the Father, and so we're intrinsically inseparable from the Godhead because of what he's done. And we see him through this. Um, and what we see him doing, we're ultimately called to give away. Now, when we see Jesus doing something, he does something in our lives, it's incredible. We're on the receiving end. It, it, it smittens our heart. It fills us with joy. And oftentimes we don't really realize that Jesus is, is, is putting something in us so that we will have that to then give away. Everything Jesus does, everything God does multiplies. And so uh, as an example, my wife over here, Minda, I can remember certain seasons of our life over the past 21 years that we've been married where she would have these moments, these marked moments where it just seems like God starts speaking, doing something in her. And everywhere she turns, it'll be the same theme, leaping off a page, leaping off the television screen, leaping off. And I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Minda, but there was one time it started, uh, one, the grow your capacity, enlarge your capacity. 
She goes to a Lisa Bevere, Lisa Bevere, who's a well-known author and speaker, a Christian speaker, and uh, she's at this kind of conference thing, and she and, and doesn't even know what Lisa's going to speak on, right? And and God starts to stir the, or you felt, you heard in your spirit the words in larger capacity, and then that became the very thing that she was speaking on. Is that or it, it was in there, and then so it's like it was just like amazing, like. Uh, confirmation. And then she reads a book by Lisa Vera on this whole thing. And it's like everywhere we turned, this theme of enlarging your capacity from Isaiah 54 uh, was just all around her. She couldn't escape it. And, and, and that became something that she meditated on, studied. She's written since then blogs. She's spoken in churches all around the world on this. She's going to Hilton Head this weekend to uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina to minister to a women's group. What's the theme? Enlarge your capacity, effectively. Uh, she's uh, ministered in women's meetings all over the place. God has just poured this out over our partnerships through her, but it all started with her seeing in her spirit Jesus doing something. You following what I'm saying? It's the activity of the Holy Spirit revealing something to her, causing her to understand something, causing her to receive something, and it started to change her life, and then ultimately it's for the purpose of giving away. My own salvation experience. You know, everybody in here who has received the Lord has nuances to their salvation experience. For me, it was all surrounding this idea that I realized I didn't know him personally, God, and that was my quest, was I want to know you, and that's what led me to receiving the Lord. Well, in essence, like, Everything that I do in ministry all revolves around knowing him, helping others to know him, helping others to know one another, and helping us to make him known to the world. You know what I mean? That's like my passion. Why is that? Because it's what I've seen in Jesus. You follow what I'm saying? What you see in Jesus becomes what you're called to give away. Matthew, the gospel writer of Matthew, he records this exact same thing, the sending of the 12. But this is what he says. Uh, this is what he records Jesus as having said. And as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out de demons, freely you have received, freely give. What you receive will ultimately be, be what you're called to give. That's, that's essentially what maturity ends up looking like. And so I want to ask us, what have we seen him do? Ask yourself that question. What have you seen him do? Because I, that surely is going to give indication to what you're called to do. And can I say, when you, when you focus on doing what you've seen him do, it's actually an easy yoke. It's actually an easy thing to do. You've got faith for it. It's something you've experienced. It's something you know. If, if Rodney is, uh, you know, doing this powerful thing that he does so well, I don't know, maybe he'd like it's a horrible example, but it's the first one that comes to my mind. He does this amazing uh, uh, series on the book of James. And I think, oh man, if I really knew Jesus, then I would, I would preach like that, the book of James. Well, if I try to do it, it's, it's not my thing. You know, it's, it's, I, mean, I can preach the book of James. <laughs> yeah, but, but, it, it, but, but Rodney has a special revelation or the blood covenant, you know, that, that revelation is something he carries. You follow what I'm saying? It, when you focus on what you have received from Jesus, it becomes an easy thing to give away. So what have you seen him do? What are the main things you've experienced of him? I guarantee you 
He is calling you. How he reveals himself to you is how he is called to you to re how he reveals himself to you is how he is calling you to reveal him through you. Always. But then there's this also kind of thing. He sends us to do what we've we've seen him do, but there's also this shifting of the disciples' faith from spectator to participant. From being the ones who are just kind of following Jesus and seeing what he's doing and beholding his amazingness. And one would think that just following Jesus, you know, these guys left everything in order to follow him, that you would think that that's like spiritual. That's like godly, right? They've sacrificed everything to, to follow Jesus. And yet, it's not all that Jesus has in, 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 uh, intended for his disciples, not just simply following him. He also intends what they watch him to do for them to be the ones who are ultimately doing that. As we just said, moving from spectator to participant. And if you look with me, uh, you know, the 12, we're going to start in verse 13, but the 12, you know, he sends them out and they come back and they're raving about what God did through them. And he's pulling them away and says, okay, well, let's, let's go away to a place of rest. And he's actually taking them to a deserted place. They're going to pray together. Uh, and it's actually a, a place near Bethsaida, which is where Peter was from and Andrew was from and several of the disciples were from. They're going back to hometown. Can you imagine how they felt? They've just gone out. They've, they've like done what they've never even dreamed of doing before. They've gone out and preached the kingdom. They've healed the sick. They're probably exhausted from the heaviness of the ministry. And they're back with Jesus and they're like, oh, yeah. Okay, let's go back to the way it used to be, like where we just follow Jesus. You do the work. That's like cool, right? Uh, and Jesus is like, well, let's go away to pray. Oh, even better. We're not even going to have to do any work. We're just going to get away and pray, spend time with Jesus. You're so awesome. And then a whole multitude of people show up and they need healing. And Jesus decides, actually, skip this prayer thing. We're going to need to minister, boys. And they're like, oh, okay, Jesus, you're awesome. I'm going to do what you want us to do. And so he preaches to them and he ends up healing all who are sick. And, and, and now we've got another problem on our hands. Not only are we exhausted from all this ministry and we had to do ministry with Jesus. Now the, the sun's beginning to go down and we're in a deserted place, remember. We're not like near the villages. We've got a mass of 50, I mean, excuse me, 5,000 men, men only. So if you add the women and children, we're probably looking at close to 15,000 people. And the disciples are like, these people are going to have to eat. So they go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, like, we got to send them away. Like, just end the, end the meeting because we need to send them away. And Jesus is, and they're still in the mode of, let's get back to the comfortable place we've been with Jesus. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Where Jesus, you do the stuff and we'll watch you. That's holy because we've left all of our family, our background. We've left our jobs to follow you. This is what we want. We just want to follow you. And Jesus is in a mode of saying, actually, boys, I'm leaving soon you, boys and girls, you are going to have to do the work that we're called to do. Excuse me, the work that I'm doing. And, and listen to this, verse 13. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Don't be surprised when the same Jesus says the same thing to you. When you go to him saying, Lord, change this. Lord, solve this problem. Lord, help these people. You give them something to eat. What was he doing? He was engaging their faith. He was stretching their faith to no longer just be postured towards following, but going. No longer just postured towards following, but going. I hope you can hear that. Because there's a big difference. And uh, 
Yeah, and the question for us would be, are we asking Jesus to do what he's actually sending us to do? And so they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food. All these people, uh, for all these people, so they were looking at the natural, verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. And then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. That's interesting. And they did so and made them all sit down. Now, why is that interesting? Because by making them sit down in groups of 50, what was he forcing to have happen? The disciples and the apostles had to go out into the group and physically touch the people, physically separate them, physically count them, physically mix. In other words, they had to be involved directly with the solution. It wasn't just anymore Jesus doing the whole thing. They were engaged, he was engaging, once again, the apostles and the disciples in with the solution. And so, you know, I, it reminds me of a time before we moved to Detroit, right before we moved to Detroit. We were leading a church in Johannesburg, South Africa, and the Lord began to impress upon us at the end of 2014 that we were actually on track to move back to America, that he was re sending us back to America. And so to do that, obviously, we would need to hand the church over to whoever God had chosen to be the, the next leaders of the church. And so we began praying, and we spent a couple months talking to a particular couple that we felt were probably the ones. I mean, they ticked all the boxes. Everything made sense. The stars aligned. Everything, they seemed like the perfect choice up here. And ultimately, that didn't happen. And when, when they, to our amazement, said that they just didn't feel like it was of God, you know, I just, my tail goes between my, leg, my legs, and I did the spiritual thing. What's the spiritual thing? I said, well, Lord, you're just going to have to show us who the, who, who's the next people. You're gonna, we're, we're not going to try to make anything happen. We're just going to pray. We're going to ask you to do, um, ask you to show us, put, show us, show us who it is. Or cause, cause, uh, cause the person to come into our, we might need to put them away. Um, cause, cause the people to cross our paths or, or what, what have you. And so I was asked to, um, during this time, I was asked to speak a message at a, uh, what we call the Connect, a, 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 uh, a meeting of connecting elders and, and lead pastors of churches that were partnered with NCMI. And so I was speaking to these elders, and, um, and I spoke a message on stepping out of the boat. And it was one of the worst experiences preaching ever. Not that it was like bad, but this is the way I would describe it. It felt like I was standing in front of a group of my peers preaching a message to myself and they were watching. That's what it felt like. I mean, and, and like I, this was unexpected. I went in thinking that I've got this word from God. I was excited and I stood up there and I just felt totally humbled. I can't even, I don't even, I can't even explain it. I mean, I felt so good going in and I felt totally humbled, leaving to the point that I went home and I had to clear my calendar for the rest of the day and just clear off all the, the things that I had scheduled. And I said, I knew there's something not right. God's wanting to show something to me and I need to get a hold of him. And I'm not coming out of this room until I get a hold of it. And I began to pray and intercede. And I got a hold of, of this thing. And here's what it was. The Lord began to show me, you're trying to have me bring to you or to show you the next elders for this church, the next lead pastor for the church. I need you to go and find him. And so there was just this shift. 
It's, it's, it's actually kind of changed my way of thinking ever since then. And so I didn't even know at all who, who it would be. But I just knew I needed to put my feet and take action somehow. And so the first thing I knew to do was to call this one pastor and to have this conversation with him. And uh, I called him and we had a little coffee or a breakfast together. And we talked and I explained some things to him. And I was hoping he would have this you know, amazing divine advice for me in my situation. And, and none, of, none of it resonated. Nothing helped. And at the very end, he just makes this off-the-mark comment. And, and it wasn't even advice, but it triggered my thought about somebody that I had never thought of before, about who to hand over to. And that led, all of a sudden, we're like, Anton and Ange Cater. Wait a minute. Oh my gosh, like they've been to our church. They've, people have been powerfully impacted by their ministry. People love them in our church. They, in fact, the more I think about it, Anton just mentioned to me that he feels like he's in a transition in his ministry. And the whole thing begins to unravel. But the, what's the whole point I'm trying to say here? Is in your journey with God, there comes a point where our posture has to change from wanting God to do this thing, as holy as that sounds, to you see what needs to happen, you go do it in his name and expect for me, Jesus, to be with you. The Great Commission, we could pray, God, save Detroit. Cause people to be saved in the city. When Jesus says, go and preach the gospel, go and make disciples, and I will be with you. You follow what I'm saying? It's a change of posture. And the latter is what results in God's ministry actually being done through his church. So as you mature, he's going to use you and your faith to bring a solution. The earthly end goal of following Jesus is Jesus doing his ministry through you. I hope we can hear that with a heart of faith. This isn't like doing ministry in some kind of professional thing that we've known. It's what you read of in this gospel of Luke, the things of Jesus being done through his church and the things that you see him doing in your, in your life and heart. So the first thing he does is he sends us to do what we see. But the second thing is, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a little long, but, but follow along with me. He reveals his glory and then he leads us to lowliness so that we can manifest his glory. How many of you have ever have in a place of prayer and worship and fellowshipping with the Lord, you felt like you were surrounded by his presence. You felt like you touched something of his glorious presence. Anybody? And it makes you, it makes you smitten. It, it arrests your heart with a desire that other people would see that same thing. Am I right? And this vision and the encounter of his glory gives us the ability it gives us the conviction that we want to see that glory manifested. And in order for us to see that glory manifested, we're going to have to endure some hardship. We're going to have to go to some low places to see his glory manifest in our lives. And so we see his glory. And then once we've seen his glory, he then has the ability to lead us into some tough places in route to the manifestation of his glory. Where do we get this? Let's Lofty vision is followed by sacrifice. So if you look with me, Luke chapter 9, verse 20. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. 
I'm sure you would agree with me, this statement that Peter just made is a serious one. I mean, it's a lofty vision of Jesus. He is essentially confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the sent one of God. Uh, this is not just like some prophet or some teacher. He's the Christ of God, a lofty vision of Jesus. What's the very next thing that Jesus reveals in result to this? He strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In Matthew chapter 16, we see the same passage of Scripture. You don't need to turn, turn there, but the same story where Jesus is asking who the crowd say that he is and who do they say that he is. And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus refers to this information, if you will, as revelation. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for no one, has, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so it's, it's a matter of revelation. And here's the idea, is the greater your revelation, the greater the sacrifice, sacrificial faith that will be required. The more you see of Jesus, the more you will sacrifice for his name. And that may make you feel like, well, I don't want to see any more of Jesus. The more you see of Jesus, the more you want to lay down your life for him. And the good news is this. It's not sacrifice for sacrifice sake. It is sacrifice for the manifestation on earth through your life of what you have seen of him. Amen. It makes you willing to endure hardship as a soldier for Jesus because you have seen something that is shining far more brilliantly than anything else that you're going to see in this earth. And it makes you hungry that the earth, it's an injustice that the people of the earth have not seen what you've seen. So the greater your revelation, the greater the sacrificial faith is going to be required. In this case, Jesus revealed his own sacrifice. But you understand, before they could even understand their sacrifice that they were going to have to walk through, they had to get grapple with the fact that the Christ of God is going to be killed by man. That's a heinous thought, right? So they had to see who he was first before they could even see the suffering that he was going to do. It starts for them with understanding Jesus' hardship, but it's also going to move into their own hardship. We'll see that in a second. So go with me down to verse 29. Here, the same thing happens again. Jesus takes uh, Peter, John, and Andrew. I mean, excuse me, Peter, James, and John up into a mountain. And uh, they're going to they're gonna pray. And it says in verse 29, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Would you agree with me that this is a revelation of, of loftiness of Jesus? This is a revelation of glory. He's, his face is white and his clothes are glistening. This is not just some dude or some great man of God. And then in verse 30, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Now, it's significant that Moses and Elijah are the ones who are sent to Jesus in this moment. <laughs> why, why is that significant? Oh, that's awesome. Who is, who is Moses? Moses is the one through whom the law comes. Who is Elijah? Elijah is the prophet that Malachi spoke of that would be coming here. Thanks for... Yes, amen. Kind of, you kind of, 
Anyways. <laughs> Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Why is it significant that, that Moses and Elijah are visiting him in this moment? Because here is the, the people who are representing the law and the prophets of God. Elijah was promised by Malachi he's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah the prophet, he's representing the, the great prophet. Moses is representing the law. We're talking about the written word of God. Two men representing the word that has been recorded for, of God on the earth. These men are representing, are coming to Jesus. This, in essence, in Peter and James and John, is going to exalt Jesus' status to being on par with these great men. And we're talking about the law and the prophets. And so here they are, and it, not only are they manifesting, look, look with me beyond this. It says that they, verse 31, who appeared in glory. So Moses and Elijah, not only Jesus, but Moses and Elijah are appearing in glory. And they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, I mean, I, I turn on the light for John and Peter when, when I wake them up in the morning. But like, talk about like a light switch to turn you on. We're talking about Jesus, Moses, and Elijah manifesting glory from heaven. That's going to wake us up, perhaps, hopefully. These disciples, though, they, they're... They do have a habit of sleeping. Uh, heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting. Who was parting? Moses and Elijah. Uh, they were parting from that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, he is realizing that Jesus is like in communion fellowship with the law and the prophets, the, 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 those who represent the recorded word of God. And he's going to make a tabernacle, a tent for each of them so that we can stay in this holy place. This is good. And, and, and the idea is, is that Jesus is on par with, uh, with even the law and the prophets. But what happens in this moment? Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. The idea of what the father interrupting Peter and saying, no, 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 this one is not on par with even my own recorded word. He is the word. He is my representative, my own flesh and blood, my own son. He is above all of that. Even Moses and Elijah hear him. I think this was a revelation of a loftiness that they had never even conceived could be possible. That is what they encountered, and they encountered it directly from God the Father himself. And what happens right after this? He goes down, he heals this boy who's uh, possessed of a devil. And it says in verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Would you be? And while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he says to his disciples, in other, let me remind you, lofty vision is followed by sacrifice. After this vision of his majesty, he says to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He could not have said that to them without them knowing something of his glory. 
He only began speaking to his disciples about his death when there was a confession about who he was. And the more we see of who he actually is, the more we can handle the sacrifice that is associated with following him. So why did he only begin? I already said that. So what would perhaps we take away from this thing before we move on? I would say let's understand the process is that God reveals his glory. And by the way, if we're not in pursuit of knowing him more and more in his glory, I think we've missed the mark of what Christianity is all about. If you don't believe me, look at Paul in Philippians 4 or 3. Three, Three, yeah. The pursuit of knowing him. That is the pursuit of the believer. It's not even doing his ministry. It's knowing him. And and that is what purifies all of churchianity is when we are primarily about pursuing Jesus to know him. But as we know him, we will have a revelation of his glory. And as we have a revelation of his glory, we become smitten that that glory manifests. And it's when we see his glory, we have something that causes us to be able to endure the sacrifice in route to the manifestation of what we've seen. Understand that process. That is how it works. So the disciples now know that he is glorious, right? They also know that he is going to suffer. The glorious, lofty, exalted one who is above even Moses and Elijah, somehow the injustice is true. Somehow we don't understand it, but we know it's true because the Father himself has manifested and, and Jesus himself has said it, that he, that one is going to suffer in this earth. Well, I cannot get my head around that, but I, it's got to be true because Jesus has said it. So let's... Let's continue watching to see how this works. Because you know, I'm sure the disciples had no idea how to put that one together, what equation, how that worked out. But the, now that they know that, that he's glorious and going to suffer, he begins to lead his disciples into how they are going to lay down their lives to follow him, lay down their lives for man, and lay down their lives for God. So shall we look into that? Because this is still true for you and me today. And let's just kind of go quickly through it. The first thing is that he calls his disciples to receive the least. Can I ask you to close your eyes real quick? And I want you to picture a person, whoever it may be, that you would be least likely to give attention to. Maybe it's some annoying person. Maybe it's the social outcast. Maybe it's the beggar on the side of the road. Maybe... It's a person that irritates you. Whoever it would be, just close your eyes and picture that person who you'd be least likely to give attention to. Now look with me in Luke 49, 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, he took a little child. Now the significance of that is children in that day had no social standing whatsoever. Uh, my grandparents' generation, some of your grandparents would say the same, they, and this is just like 100 years ago or less than 100 years ago, they, they, when they were children, they sat at the table and they did not speak at the table unless spoken to. And think about the way dinners go today in our culture. Things change. And back in that day and time, children were, were, were relegated to nothing. They should be seen and not heard. They should be seen and not heard. That's it. And here's Jesus while his disciples are having this argument 
about which one of them is the greatest, he, to demonstrate the, his answer to that question, takes a little child, a, 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 a social peon, and says, whoever receives this one. And now what does this word receive mean? It means to engage in social intercourse, to accept in, uh, to... Um, Yep. Give attention to, to not refuse socially. Whoever receives this one in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. What he's saying is, if you're great, that will be shown by giving attention to the one that your society is least likely to give attention to. Why? Because every single person has been given a price tag upon their head. And on that price tag, the dollar sign says the blood of Jesus, the blood of, of the Son of God. Every human has been made in His image. There, that person that you have pictured in your head, that one, Jesus died for. I know that sounds so cliche, but if we can just embrace that, it is an honor to speak to even the lowliest. Why? Because whatever we do to them, we do to him. And you cannot separate our treatment of the lowliest from our very treatment of Jesus himself. You know, here I am to worship. Part of how we worship is how we treat the lowly. So can we associate with rejects? Can we invest relationally in those that the world does not? Another way that he calls his, his disciples to lay down their lives for man and for God is to not reject those who don't measure up to our standard. Check this out, Luke 9.49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. What was Now, now think about John's perspective. John had left his fishing business and that was all he had to depend upon for a future. I mean, he had left everything to follow Jesus. He probably took following Jesus seriously. So when he sees somebody else trying to do the stuff that only we do, and they're, he's not following, he's like, no, you're not part of our tribe, our group. And why does Jesus respond to this situation? Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. John is saying others need to measure up with us in order to really be a part of us. Jesus is taking this broad sieve that has nothing to do with performance and only has to do with the heart, and the, 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 the bar is lowered so low that the only standard that he says of those who are good with us and good standing with us is that they're not against us. So pretty much most of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes and chief priests, those, they're not good with us. They're actually against us. The person working at Planned Parenthood who's not against us, the person who's selling meth on the... If he's not against us, good with us. <laughs> Are you hearing me? We should broadly accept people based on their heart with a broad, low bar instead of a narrow, high bar based on performance. Lay down our lives for man and for God. And so it's another way that he says this. He says to, to serve those who oppose us. So Jesus, now that he's confessed that he's going to be handed over, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to die, he starts heading towards the location where that's going to happen, being the city of Jerusalem. And then to, to get there, he's got to pass through Samaria. Now, if you remember, the Samaritans were 
in kind of this racial opposition with Jews. There was a bit of a, of a, of a clash, you know. I guess it could have been, you know, like us passing through Ohio to get to Kentucky, right? <laughs> that is a, that's a long, dangerous drive. Don't wear blue as you pass through, right? And so that's what, what he's doing. And he sent a couple of his disciples to, to go to some of the vill- this village in Samaria and let them know that we're coming, we're passing through Jerusalem. Can you give us a place to stay? And when they do that, they hear that Jesus is going to be headed towards Jerusalem. And they say, oh, you're Jews, number one, and you're headed towards Jerusalem and you're using us to get to your place? No, you're not welcome. And so uh, here's the response of the disciples. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They even had scriptural backing for this opinion. And by the way, so much of the church has scriptural backing for a heart that is completely unlike God's. And we can, the devil is chief of twisting the scripture, by the way. And unfortunately, he does it in Jesus and the elect. So so here we, we have a great cost. This is not like an inconvenience. They're passing through. It's nighttime. They need a place to stay. And now we get here and not one person is going to let us stay here, which means we have to keep on traveling in the night, in the weather, in the, you know, the elements with the danger of who could be out on the road. You follow what I'm saying? We don't have any food. We're hungry. This is great inconvenience to him. And he's wanting to call fire down from heaven. And they are. And what has Jesus respond to this situation? He says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And the implication is that I am actually headed to Jerusalem with the intention of salvation of those who just rejected us. Specifically, including these Samaritans in the group of those that he has come to save. And so the question for us would be, if, does our heart for others change when they do us wrong? Do we identify with the heart of Jesus that says regardless of if, whether they oppose us, are we come to save people or to, through Jesus, see people saved? What's another way that all that is kind of like our heart towards people, but Jesus also calls his disciples to lay down their lives sacrificially for God. And can I say again, put this back into the context. We're talking about seeing a lofty, a revelation of Jesus that makes us smitten to see this image of Jesus somehow manifest in the earth. We've got to get the world to see what we've seen. And in route to seeing it happen, we have to walk through lowliness to where it's no longer us who do it, but only God through us. And if that's going to happen, here's what Jesus says to those who want to go there. We've got to sacrifice everything for God, our comfort and security and our reputation and relationships. It's not saying that you have to leave your family and disassociate from all your friends in order to really follow Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying in the course of following Jesus, there may be decisions that you make that are going to put at stake your job, your comfort, your security, your relationships, the whole kit and caboodle. And in that moment... That is where the question resounds inside of us. Who do you say I am? 
am I gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and I'm the Lamb of God, and we all go to church on Sunday so that we can tick our Christian box, or am I the king and master of your life? And there's nowhere else to turn. You're the only one that I have to follow. So comfort and security. How, how, how does he say that? Luke 9, 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. How many of you in a moment of worship have said the same thing to Jesus? And, and that's great. I'm not like dismissing that. We, there's something of seeing Jesus. These guys had just seen Jesus. He had, uh, they just saw him cast out demons out of this boy. They've seen these amazing things. They're tracking with him. And, and up out of his heart says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And that's a good thing to say. But Jesus made it clear what he just said. Do you know what you just said? That you'll follow me wherever I go? Let me make it explicit if you don't. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. Speaking of what? A place to live. Foxes have a place to live. Birds of the air have a place to live. The Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. In other words, if you're following me, you don't have home in this earth. Your home is no longer earth. And if you're uprooted from any kind of natural tie and bound bondage to this earth, you're able to follow me wherever I want to lead. It could mean that you don't really have a, a home anymore. I'm not talking about being homeless for Jesus. I'm talking about you. nothing you own is, is no, any longer your own. You're stewards, not owners. You you hold everything lightly, and God can take it away in a, in a moment. And you—that's what it means to follow me, is what He's saying. <clears throat> that's the reality. It would be better for us to say these things so that we know the reality of what it is to really follow Jesus. If you follow me, you have no definite earthly security or home. And if, obe if obeying Jesus means risking our basic needs, is He worthy of that? Guess what happens when you do make a leap of faith and risk everything, by the way? Guess what happens? He meets you there. He sees you through. I've been there. I've done that. I'm telling you from experience. You put it all on the line. To do this thing that you know Jesus is telling you to do means you put everything on the line. You, do, you are toast if he doesn't somehow come through. He will. I believe even if you miss him, he will still come through because he's going to honor your faith. It doesn't mean we get reckless, but it means following Jesus is... It's, if, if, if you're not putting stuff on the line in the course of following Jesus, there may be a non-following of Jesus happening. He will definitely lead you towards risk in obedience to him. So your comfort and security, but also your reputation and even your relationships... Where do we get that from? Here. Here. Verse 59. Then he said to another, follow me. So now the guy's not saying, I'll follow you. Jesus is, is, is beckoning him to follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. There have been times in my following of Jesus, where God has led me to do something that I knew those in my close relationships were not going to be able to understand and they were going to think I was crazy. And in especially early college days, 
when I made some decisions with regards to career. I had a career path that was normal, that was guaranteed, you know, secure. It was, it was uh, uh, um, kind of guaranteed to be lucrative. And then I make these decisions because I become a Christian that are kind of giving all that stuff up. And there was no way for the people around me to understand. And I, when I say the people, I mean like everybody in my life. And when you try to explain, why are you doing this? Well, I feel called to ministry. Oh, that's cool. So what seminary are you going to go to? You're going to get a, you know, so that you can get like a, a career in ministry and with a, with a paycheck and write. No. Well, what are you going to do? Well, we're doing like, a, you know, I'm getting theological training through this online thing. But um, really, I'm kind of be, being discipled in my church. Well, how do you make money from that? Uh, Jesus? Do you hear what I'm saying? He, he's, he will lead you to moments where you will actually feel empathy and feel bad for the person that you're talking to who doesn't understand you. Because you're like totally like, I get it. Like, I, I get it. Like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, take into consideration what this person said. I, follow me. I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go bury my father. I mean, let that sink in. Can you possibly disrespect your family and the one who raised you any more than not attending their funeral? Let the dead bury their dead. You go preach the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying, like, don't go to your dad's funeral. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, it is all or nothing. I'm not, I'm not talking about like Clint Eastwood, you know, getting my 45 and saying, you follow Jesus. It's not a threat. Either he is worthy of it all, or he is not really who we say he is. But if he is who we say he is, there is nothing that he is not worthy of. This is the reputation and relationships. <laughs> Look at the next verse, verse 61. And we'll end here. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Just let me go say goodbye one last time. I'm with you, but Jesus is saying, I'm not stopping. If you go bid them farewell, when you try to come back here, where the disciples and me are hanging out right now, we're not going to be here anymore. And we're not going to like make provisions for you to go. We're on our way. In other words, if you want to follow me, you've got to leave everything. Hook your chain to this, to this train and go. That's what it is. And that, that posture of following Jesus will result in the glory of Jesus manifesting through a people who are following him in that way. And it's all worth it. Am I wrong? If obeying Jesus means that those close to us will think of us as strange, is he worthy of that? So can I just conclude with these statements? Firstly, Jesus is training us to do his ministry. That is why you are following Jesus from an earthly perspective. Jesus, uh, Rodney often says, if that's not the case, then they should have pistols at the altar call. That's a little, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, can't we just say cyanide or something? Why do you have to say pistols? It's like so violent. But, but anyways, there's no earthly purpose of us still remaining on this earth after we become a follower of Jesus, if not to do his ministry. Jesus is training us to do his ministry. Secondly, is that to do his ministry, we must first see him. You're never going to do the ministry of Jesus without seeing him through relationship in your spirit, in your inner man. That's our life. That is the, the uh, river of living waters that Jesus spoke of. That is, it's seeing him. It's a beholding him. It's fellowshipping with him. It's, that is our life. Let us never leave that place or try to do ministry but from that place. We see him, but thirdly, as we see him, we then become able to suffer for him. Because following him will result in sacrifice and suffering. It will. But if we leave it there, that's, a, that's, that's not good news. That's bad news. Fourthly and finally, if we suffer, as we suffer in his name, we're then able to do, he is able to do his ministry through us. As we lay it all down, get out of the way, follow him wherever he's going, he has a people that he can do whatever he wants to do through us.